0: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good.
1: Welcome to The Feast. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. And we're bringing you stories from the best meals of history. As a special treat, today we're featuring a special collaboration between The Feast and PastTheChipotle.com, a great site dedicated to Mexican cuisine, run by Rocio Carvajal, a food researcher, author, and speaker. She's developed some fantastic recipes to go along with today's episode, so be sure to check out our website... Thefeastpodcast.org to see some of her work in action.
0: It all seemed like a tale, a legend, all the memories of my childhood. You know how to make pasties and prepare a proper stew. Today,
1: A four-lane highway extends northeast out of Mexico City. As you leave the metropolis behind, you'll find yourself traveling along a vast, flat plain known as the Mexican Basin, which extends for almost 100 miles in every direction. Only a few pepper trees, barrel cactus, yucca, and agave break up the flatness. But if you head long enough on that highway, you'll soon see mountains. The Sierra de Pachuca, looming out of the horizon, hinting at something beyond the flat, arid landscape you find yourself in. Now today, this trip to the mountains probably won't take you more than a few hours, speeding along at 65 or 70 miles an hour. But it's not hard to imagine how difficult a journey this would be on a horse or a wagon just a few centuries ago. Now Pachuca, The city nestled at the base of these mountains takes its name for them. And today, as the capital of the state of Hidalgo, it's a bustling city of a little less than 300,000 people. It's a city whose history as a mining town is literally carved into the landscape, pocked with old tunnels and dumps, miles upon miles of evidence of the hard process of separating and processing ore for over 300 years. When the Spaniards first set their sights on plumbing the rich silver veins of Mexico, one of the first areas they set their sights on was here. You can get a sense of just how much money was wrapped up in this town from the treasury that was built here in the late 17th century, a massive stone edifice in the heart of the old town, where Mexican silver was exchanged for Spanish dollars for over a 100 years. We're not stopping in Pachuca, but heading even further up the mountain, to the small mining town of Real del Monte. Now, it's a small but vibrant town, built in a colonial mountain style, with steep streets and low buildings centered around a beautiful church and square. Walking along, you'll see shops and restaurants advertising traditional pastes, or handheld pies, even an entire museum dedicated to the food. All the while, the town clock chimes in the style of Big Ben. If we head out of town, climbing even further up the mountain, we can see a tall grove of trees, surrounded by a sturdy wall, protecting a small cemetery. At the gate, here in the middle of Mexico, the English inscription, cast in sturdy 19th century iron, welcomes us inside. Walking through the row of plots, it's easy to see a theme among the names. Arthur Johnson, James Bennett, Julia Bowden. Each one oriented the same way. Northeast, towards Cornwall, England. To understand what the cemetery, the pies, even the clock, is doing in the small mountain town in Mexico, we have to go back. Way back. It's a story of food. How a dish or cuisine, which is often created out of need or want, can transform into a bedrock of shared heritage, something that makes up a fundamental part of our identity. But the story is also about how foods change with travel and time, how they can become emblems of home, but how they can also be shaped by the new environments and communities we find ourselves in, shifting subtly and slowly to become something entirely new. It's also a story about pie. And who doesn't like a story about pie? Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I find lunch the most frustrating meal of the day. Now, when I was young, I had to bring my lunch to school. It would stay in my locker for most of the day, sandwiches slowly getting soggy, or worse yet, mushed from sitting at the bottom of my backpack on the ride to school. Even now where I work, I'm perpetually plagued by lunch. As a commuter, I've tried to keep up a good pack-from-home style, but over the years, I've suffered more accidental spills and container breaches that have ruined phones, documents, even computers, that I'm more than fed up with the process. I even have trouble finding reasons to break for lunch, to be honest. Working on a university campus, I find myself too often justifying some grab-and-go options, living up to the sad desk salad lifestyle in order to get through grading or prep work for a lecture, instead of taking the time to stay and eat at the local cafeteria or coffee shop. And it seems I'm not alone in my perpetual quest for a better lunch lifestyle. Millions, if not billions of dollars, have gone into solving the lunchtime issue. How to get delicious and increasingly healthy food to the workplace. How many newspaper or internet articles have you seen that promise recipes for quote-unquote fast and easy lunches, often accompanied by artful photos of mason jar salads with colorful ingredients stacked high, assuring the woeful lunch maker of staying fresh and delicious until midday. But for most of history, folks have had to think of other ways to bring food with them to their place of work, whether up to a modern office building, out to a distant field, even underground to a mine. Folks might bemoan the rise of fast food in the 20th and 21st century, but needing an easy and portable food to take with you on the go is nothing new. And before the invention of plastic wrap, the mason jar, or even the tiffin box, people used other ways of not only getting homemade portable food to the workplace, but also making sure it stayed fresh and edible once it got there. No room for mushy sandwiches here. And without the convenience of communal office bridges or insulated lunch boxes humans had to get creative of finding some way to carry their meals that would keep food intact and edible. Although plant leaves or wood did the job on occasion, it seems the easiest way to wrap food was in food itself. And flour, with us since our earliest ancestors turned to farming, turned out to provide the secret ingredient to these portable meals. Mix a bit of flour, water, and egg together, and you find yourself with a handy and moldable material that can cover almost any food you can think of. Put it in the oven, or at least a very hot place for a little while, and behold, a secure and portable container that preserves the food within. Perhaps it's no surprise that we can find variations of these portable pastries, often known simply as pies in English, all over the world. Although the earliest thing we might call or recognize as a meat pie was first recorded in the Middle East, they have been staples of cuisines throughout the world. In Spain, where they were known as empanadas, a term which literally means wrapped in bread, in Germany, where they were known as Fleischkugel, roughly cooked meat, or the Eastern European and Russian chebarek or chebureki, The word and the food may have links to an Ottoman dish popularized in the 17th century, when certain handheld pies, known as borek, which contained savory meats or even sweet honey and cheese, were all wrapped up in phyllo pastry, baked and then often covered in a delicious syrup. Now these are just a couple of examples, but if you think about the Italian calzone, the Jamaican patty, not to mention the numerous variations of Chinese buns and dumplings, Think even of the beloved Hot Pockets microwave meal. Variations on this ancient discovery that flour and water provided a perfect edible covering to just about any food. But perhaps no region has fought so hard for their particular version of the pastry pie as Cornwall in southwest England. As with many places, the handheld pie quickly became a staple throughout England and written evidence of some form of a pastry-encased food can be traced to the late medieval period. Now, pies were the democratic food of early England, found on both peasant and royal tables alike. Now, at the time, these foods were often described by the wide-ranging Middle English and medieval French term of paste or pasta. We see variations of both. And the term was very, very general it often referred simply to just a mixture of ingredients or compounds. But the terms could also mean a glue. And if you look a century or so later, it then develops a specific association with some form of dough. Now, as you can probably guess, this very general term from the medieval period has given us a whole bunch of modern English words that have taken from these various definitions, such as paste, pastry, of course, pasta, and along with what became the specifically Cornish pasty. These pastes, or pies as they often came to be known, could be altered to suit the highest and lowest of tables. Kings of England could be delighted by elaborately and intricately shaped pies, many decorated with expensive sugar, edible symbols of wealth, while, on the other hand, the poor of the country found an easy and economic way of keeping the family fed. The dough and vegetables helped to bulk out, and often disguise, cheap cuts of meat. When industrialization took over the country, vendors found meat pies an easy way to make a pound or two, easy to reheat on the street, and sell to factory workers on break or lunch. But it was the growth of the mining industry in England, particularly the tin mines in the southwest, where what would be known as the Cornish pasty truly took off as a regional food. By the early 19th century, sources indicate that pasty had already taken on a specific meaning, referring to a Cornish working man's meal, more often than not, a local version of the widespread meat pastry pie. The Agricultural Survey of Cornwall of 1808 referred to the, quote, laboring man having usually a bit of beef for his pasty. For those working in the tin mines of Cornwall, the pasty was an easy, and more importantly, safe, way of getting a meal while working underground. Its distinctive crimped D shape made it easy to slip into a pocket and also provided an easy and convenient handle to eat it with. Local myth suggests that the crimped handle also helped safeguard the miners against the perils of their profession. The dangerous arsenic of the tin mines, which coated miners' hands, made eating a hazardous activity. By holding onto the handle of the pasty while eating, miners kept their food arsenic-free, throwing away the now-contaminated pastry handle when they were finished with their meal. The famous Cornish pasty, with its distinctive ingredients, seasonings, even its shape and size has been legally protected by the European Union since 2011, which granted it Protected Geographical Indication Status, also known as PGI, a label given to around 40 different foods and products from the British Isles, including an entirely different also-protected English pastry, the Melton Mowbray Pork Pie. Sure, you may want to just call them both simple meat pies, but do so at your own peril. Granting this kind of status is the EU's way of protecting high-quality or distinctive foods and products associated with a specific region, ones that are often are very heavily linked to a community's identity and heritage. Take Champagne, the famous example, which, in order to be legally sold as such, needs to be made in the Champagne region of France, according to its EU protected designation of origin, or PDO status. Now, this is a bit different from the Cornish pasty. PDO status insists that a product sold under a specific name, in this case champagne, must have been produced, processed, and prepared in a specific geographical area, often according to very traditional methods. So, for example, this means a bottle of champagne must contain wine made from champagne grapes, which were processed in a champagne winery according to traditional champagne methods. That is, all those lovely bubbles. So how does that differ from the Cornish pasty? Although PGI status in EU law doesn't insist, for example, that all the contents of a Cornish pasty must have been grown and prepared in Cornwall, don't think that means they're relaxed about what exactly defines what is and what isn't, Cornish pasty. And if you have a few hours to kill, you can look up the exact definition of a Cornish pasty according to EU law, including various amendments to the definition that have been proposed since it first received status in 2011. Now I've picked out just a few couple choice bits here, but if you're interested, it's really worth taking a look just to see how finicky these regulations are. We'll put up a link to the whole EU document on our webpage. So here we go the actual legal definition of the Cornish pasty. Filling ingredients for the Cornish pasty must consist of sliced or diced potato, Swede, onion, diced or minced beef, and seasoning. And that's it. Nothing else is legally accepted as an ingredient, and certainly not carrots, which apparently has ruffled a few feathers in the past. The regulations even specify the various ratios of meat to vegetable in a true pasty. A minimum 25% vegetable and minimum 12.5% beef if you're interested. But the ingredients are just the tip of the iceberg. The regulations continue to include how the pasties are to be shaped and formed. They must be in the shape of a D, with the edges crimped, either by hand or mechanically, to one side and never on top. There's even a proposed amendment to the regulations that insists that the crimping can sit, at maximum, of 45-degree angle. Now, all I can say is, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at that meeting, where the relative merits of the 40% versus 50% crimping angle of the... Tonight on NBC... Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story... Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated.
0: One doctor will break every
1: rule... Just tell me what you need, what your patients need...
0: ...to inspire...
1: A revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors. Again.
0: From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam. Tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75%
1: less sugar and calories... Because it tastes so good, Cornish pasty were discussed. Say what you will about the legal ramifications of crimping angles. There should be no doubt that it's the pasty's inextricable link to Cornish history and culture that has led to such fierce defense of this humble meat and veggie pie. But, it may be asked, what does all this have to do with the town in Mexico? It all comes down to mining, the industry that dominated both Cornwall and Real del Monte throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. Cornwall, of course, at one time was considered the richest area in the world for tin and to a lesser extent, copper, while miners would pull over 1.2 billion ounces of silver from the mountains of Pachuca, approximately 6% of the total silver mined in the world over the last five centuries. Let that sink in for a minute. Despite being half a world apart, these two mining towns would see their fortunes inextricably linked in the mid-19th century. Cornish mining had taken off like wildfire in the late 18th century. Advances in mining technology allowed tin and other metals to be pulled from the ground easier and faster. The wealth of the mines And the lure of high wage employment drew men and women from around the country, walking away from the farming life to become part of England's new underground industrial workforce. Not that it was an easy life. The work was dirty, dangerous, and dark, with workers having to spend upwards of 10 hours underground each day. Not that life in the silver mines of Real del Monte was much easier. The Spanish aristocratic families who had founded and managed the mines since the early days of colonialism in the 17th century often had trouble finding a workforce willing to risk their lives for the sought-after silver. Not to say these counts didn't make a serious profit. One famous mine owner, who apparently made a cool $5.2 million from Pachucan silver, had the church procession walk on bars of silver when his children were baptized. Even such opulent displays of wealth couldn't hide how dangerous the job of silver mining was. Even when the mine owners offered unbelievable wages, at some points even offering to pay workers directly in the silver they had just pulled from the mountains, the Spanish counts constantly found themselves short-staffed. And by the early 19th century, they had bigger things to worry about. The start of the Mexican War of Independence in 1810 upended the silver industry. The years of fighting were bad news for the mining operations. The workforce dwindled even more, workers ran off to help fight, and the mines themselves were often battle sites. The Spanish elite quickly saw their source of the family fortune dry up in the haze of the revolution. By the end of the war in 1821, With the first national Mexican government established, the future of mining in the region was deeply uncertain. The new government certainly knew the potential wealth lying underneath their feet, but lacked a secure means of getting at it. Many of the mines, which had been managed or controlled by the Spanish crown and the aristocracy, had been abandoned. With the former mine managers now largely back in Spain, the Mexican government needed new mining specialists and quickly. But where to get them posed another problem. Back in the 18th century, eager to protect the natural resources of Mexico, the Spanish government had issued an order banning any foreigners from getting involved in the mining industry in colonial Mexico. But for the new post-revolutionary government, one in desperate need of money, foreign investment was an alluring prospect. The ban on foreign mining operations was formally overturned in 1823, throwing the door wide open to new foreign interests in Mexican silver. And Britain came calling. In 1825, the British crown formally recognized Mexico, Gran Colombia, and Argentina as independent nations. By the end of that year, at least 25 different British business ventures had been proposed for mines in Latin America, seven in Mexico alone. And one of those was the mine of Real del Monte. So with the business deal formalized, the Mexican mining industry got its wish, an influx of foreign investment, along with the bonus of the latest in mining technology. Susan Schwartz, an expert on Cornish history in the 19th and 20th centuries, calls the period from 1815 to 1930 the Great Migration and estimates that Cornwall lost up to 20% of its male population every decade, a total loss of anywhere between a quarter to a half a million people. As mines were set up in British outposts throughout the world, from Latin America to Australia, Cornish miners... Experts in the hard work and technology the industry called for took the opportunity to earn extra money and see the world. When the British Real del Monte Mining Company was formed in the 1820s, over 120 Cornish miners and British officers, along with seven women and three children, not to mention over 1,500 tons of mining equipment, were on the first boats to set out for the Mexican mountains from England in the late spring of 1824. Even if the miners had been used to hard work in Cornwall, the process of getting both men and machine from the nearest port in Veracruz to the mountains of Pachuca was anything but easy. A distance of almost 250 miles, it must have been an exhausting trip. And that was only the beginning. The abandonment of the mine during the Mexican War of Independence meant that the miners had to start from scratch, installing and readying their new British machinery for an untested Mexican climate. A grueling journey across oceans and mountains, not to mention the intense demands of the new mine equipment, took their toll. Over 20 miners died before that summer was even out. But of course, there was more than just the change from mining tin and copper to mining silver the Cornish miners and their wives found themselves in an entirely new landscape, with a language, religion, and customs they had never experienced before. As more Cornish miners arrived throughout the 1820s and 1830s, Real del Monte slowly started to show signs of its new English community. The British company poured money into the town, rebuilding and redesigning the Casa Grande, the chief residence of the mine manager, in a distinctly English style, complete with fireplaces and English-style chimneys. Even a thousand miles away from Cornwall, the miners and their families did what they could to help remember their homeland, building pubs and restaurants that served English food, even a Methodist chapel to worship in. And even when the British Real del Monte Company failed in the 1840s, many of the Cornish miners and their families who had emigrated to the area in the decades before chose to stay, continuing to work in the mines and raising their children in the Mexican mountain air. When they died, they were buried in the specially built Panteón de los Ingleses, or the English Cemetery. Although the Cornish miners had chosen to remain in Mexico for the rest of their lives, their graves reflected their attachment to their English beginnings. By rule or custom. All the graves in the cemetery were oriented northeast to England, pointing home. The Cornish migration and residency in Real del Monte has created an interesting dialogue about identity in the region. One former resident of the town, Alicia Trevithen, a descendant of the original Cornish miners, who we heard from at the beginning of the episode, reflects on the often complicated issues that many in the town still confront today about their heritage and identity. Although English by descent, today she considers herself 100% Mexican.
0: My
1: mother was born
0: in Chihuahua, a northern state bordering with the United States. And so she was also raised with foreign traditions, like speaking English. Her father also worked as a mine manager and spoke fluent English. For her, it all became too much of a coincidence when she moved to Hidalgo because she found it easy to interact with the English-speaking community. The English migrants brought their culture and found it hard to share it, but they did adopt many of our traditions. Even today, Visitors are impressed by the uncanny air of a typical English town that Real del Monte has. Many wonder how the English managed to get Mexicans to embrace pastas. But the answer is simple. They baked them and we just learned and made them our own, along with beef stew, which is very similar to the Mexican version that is served with a broth instead of gravy.
1: In Real del Monte, food became a binder between the two communities, a way of sharing and learning about the other's culture. The Cornish, of course, introduced their famous pasties, a hardy mining food, to their Mexican neighbors, while the indigenous people of the community in Real del Monte offered a rich culinary history of their own. Rocio Carvajal talks a bit about what this early food swap must have been like. To the British palate, Mexican food
0: must have felt like a true assault on the taste buds. Cornish food is famous for its wide variety of fish and other seafood. Traditional meat pies, strong cheddar cheeses and of course its pasties, which are integral to the regional cuisine. A proud tradition of cider, beer and wine are particularly distinctive of the county. These traditional dishes may be rich and wholesome, but they lack the diversity, flavor and color of Mexican cuisine. And also, being so regionally specific, they could not be easily replicated in the Mexican climate and geography. However proud Mexicans are of their national gastronomy, they are always keen to welcome and adapt the foods brought by migrant communities. So, It is perhaps no surprise, to Mexicans at least, that dishes like mole and tinga have made their way into the pasties. These pasties, or pastes, may look very familiar to the British on the outside, but looks can be deceiving, as inside they have a true and fiery Mexican heart.
1: It's unclear exactly when the Cornish pasty transformed to what is now known as the Real del Monte Paste, but today it's a food which is almost as celebrated in the state of Hidalgo as the pasty is in Cornwall itself. Although the ingredients for a true traditional Cornish pasty, at least for the time being, are regulated by EU law, the ingredients you might find in a Mexican paste are far more wide-ranging, frequently including corn kernels, mushrooms, mole, chipotles, jalapeños, or beans. No debates about carrots here, let alone 45-degree crimping angles. Over the past few decades, Cornwall and Real del Monte have teamed up to discover more about their shared heritage by founding the Cornish Mexican Cultural Society, which has helped in research into the Cornwall Great Migration, the history of mining in the two regions, and, of course, their two shared culinary traditions. Real del Monte has almost become a household name in England these days, marketed as Little Cornwall by the Mexican Embassy in London, and was even visited by, well, who else? The Duchess of Cornwall and the Prince of Wales in 2014, who even took the time to stop in at the local Paste Museum, the first of its kind. And since 2009, there's even an annual festival held every October in honor of the local pastes. And don't forget it's mention on a little-known cooking show called The Great British Bake Off. If you'd like to try a Real del Monte paste of your own, you can find a great recipe by Rocio Carvajal on our website, as well as links to many of the great photos and stories about both Cornish and Real del Monte history including, of course, the food. A big thanks in general to Rocio for all her help with the episode this week. And if you are planning a visit to the stunning colonial city of Puebla in Mexico, just two hours from Mexico City, don't miss the opportunity to experience Puebla's magnificent gastronomic history with her Puebla's Great Food Tour. Twice listed in UNESCO's tangible and intangible heritage for its colonial architecture and the immense value of its gastronomy, Puebla is a city to be enjoyed with your eyes and your taste buds. Presented by Rocio Carbajal, a native of Puebla, food researcher, author, and speaker, her tour will transform your understanding and appreciation of Mexican history and cuisine by taking you on a walking tour of the city, where you'll sample the unique culinary dishes available and uncover the historical events that shape the edible treasures of a world-acclaimed cuisine. Book your tour today at www.pastthechipotle.com slash foodtours. Thanks as well to Susan Schwartz, and particularly Aida Suárez Chávez, whose research on the British cemetery in Real del Monte was invaluable for this episode, and provided the quotes from former Real del Monte resident Alicia Trevithen, read by Rocio Carvajal. Find Aida Suárez Chávez's book, From Cornwall to Real del Monte, an everlasting adventure at a local bookstore today. This episode was co written by Rocio Carvajal and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port, who can't believe I went this whole episode without saying, and they call it mine. Well, there you go. That's your one. Great music featured today on the episode includes work by Fabian Measures, Blue Dot Sessions, Jazzar, Chris Zabriskie, and Kevin McLeod. You can find all the music heard today on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. If you haven't already, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to become a supporting member of The Feast, please visit our campaign page at Patreon. And that's all for us this week. Join us again in two weeks' time as we explore another great meal from the past. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast.